0: All right. A couple of things before we get started tonight. Just a reminder, the Pastors Conference is coming up in about three weeks on March 11th to 13th. This year, the focus is on uh, critical issues in Old Testament studies. You're going to learn a lot no matter what, even though Especially, one of them is really targeted to helping teachers teach the Old Testament. The way he's going to do it is such that he's going to be taking people through various different passages in the Old Testament and talking about how to teach them. And in classes like that, I always found that I learned more about whatever the scripture was than than other in other classes. So you'll learn a lot. So even though this is a Pastors Conference, and the target audience is pastors, everybody else can understand every, everything that's going, going to be said and taught, and you'll be greatly edified by the entire conference, as we find every year. Our two keynote speakers this year, the first one changed, Alan Ross uh, still having a difficult time recovering from his uh, hip surgery, so be in prayer for him as well as his wife, who had the surgery a year and a half ago and still having a difficult time. Pray for both of them. We hope that he will recover and be with us sometime in the next year. Uh, but Dr. Mark McGinnis, who has Ph.D. in Old Testament, teaches at Baptist Bible Seminary, comes highly recommended by uh, David Roseland and by uh, Bruce Baker and by um, uh, Mike Stallard. Uh, all of whom we've had speak here, I believe, and they all give him, give him high marks. He's going to do a great job, as well as Stephen Gurr. So uh, look for that. If you'd like to work at the conference, we need volunteers. You can go to deanbibleministries.org slash Chafer, register as a conference volunteer and indicate the area in which you would like to help. Uh, we also need your help because we provide 120 dozen cookies for those who are sugar-starved during the conference, that's uh, we would hate for anybody to, you know, uh, fall asleep due to lack of carbohydrates. So, you can sign up uh, for that. Also, if you've noticed, we've been tr- sending out emails related to legislative issues that are going on, and we are trying to keep people abreast. I get emails from about five or six different organizations. Most of these are emails that are related to fundraising, but they, they point out what they are doing and the legislative battles that are taking place. One that is taking place that texasvalues.org has been uh, <clears throat> communicating a lot about is that there are a number of bills that the radical LGBTQP group on the radical left, and of course everybody from there to middle conservative is yielding to the intimidation of that crowd. And so this radical group of anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-constitutionalists are continuing to probe for weaknesses by putting up bills. House Bill 978 attacks the biblical view of family by calling for the elimination of references to mother and father, husband and wife from the family code. In House Bill 1190, there's the attempt to get the government to punish mental health providers who counsel their patients from a Christian perspective. And other banned the Bible bills, that's what they're calling them, um, would force businesses to use their artistic talents for same-sex marriage ceremonies. It would um, call for religious homeless shelters, colleges, and universities to allow biological men to sleep next to women. And also calling for private property owners to allow men access to women's showers, locker rooms, bathrooms, and vice versa. So this is the coming battle or the next stage of the ongoing war between uh, perversion and biblical truth, ultimately an attempt to destroy the very fabric of this, of this nation. So we need to be in prayer uh, for those things. Also I want to uh, again endorse and recommend a book that Bruce Baker a uh, pastor of Washington County Bible Church we all have heard Bruce at the Chafer conferences he has ALS and he is uh he's had to he's he knows that he cannot continue speaking for, for much longer because his uh he gets winded very easily but he has written a book called For Thou Art With Me Biblical Help for the terminally, terminally ill and those who love them. So if you know people that need to be comforted biblical, biblically, understand what the end-of-life issues are, either because they're caregivers for someone in their family or they themselves are going through this, uh, this is a book for them. Uh, we have ordered a number of copies of this that will be available during the Chafer Conference and so we are uh, not telling Bruce that we're doing this, but I worked out a deal with his publisher to get the books at cost, at his discount, the author's discount, and then we're going to offer them um, at a discounted price and the whatever extra comes in that God provides will go to Bruce. And so um, those will be available. Scripture that was... Emailed to me this morning is one I think we need to remember. As we look about our current culture and see things that are going on, Psalm 92.7 7 says, When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forevermore, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, For behold, your enemies shall perish, all the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace, for your goodness, We know we live in a world where there are those who are so immersed in sin, they have so destroyed their ability to think rationally and objectively because of of their sin and their rejection of you and their suppression of truth and righteousness, yet we pray for them because if it were not for your grace, we would all be in that situation. And yet you have loved the world. You have provided a salvation. You have sent your son to die for those sins and to pay that cost, and to provide eternal forgiveness. And so we pray that as believers that we may now shine forth as uh, those as light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, that we may be a real testimony of grace and love. It's not about uh, the sin. We don't want to endorse it or have it pro- promiscuously promoted within our civilization, but we do want to uh, reach out and demonstrate your love to those who are immersed in this. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would protect these, these legislators, so many in the Texas state legislature are believers and know how to stand for the truth, and we pray that you would continue to increase their numbers and increase their faith and strengthen them in the midst of these assaults that are coming. And Father, we pray for us that we might be grace-oriented and kind and generous to all who are around us, no matter what their sins are, and that we might encourage them with the truth of your word and that your word would really produce in us the kind of joy that our Lord wishes to share with us. And that can only come as a result of walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would encourage us tonight as we study your word and we come to understand your plan and purpose for history a little more, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We get a lot of mail, good mail. People send little notes telling us how much they appreciate the teaching that goes out from this pulpit and all that we make available to them, and I like to share these now and then with the congregation because it's an encouragement for all of you, because you are very much a part of what makes this ministry possible. This, uh, little note came in, uh, just this last week. Dear friends at West Houston Bible Church and Dean Bible Ministries, we so appreciate the privilege of worshiping with you on Sunday mornings via the internet. My husband is in advanced Alzheimer's disease, so our ability to be at a local assembly is not possible. Also, the lack of sound Bible teaching in our area has become the norm, even in the church we ministered and taught at for the last 35 years. So what a joy to hear God's Word taught with clarity from your ministry. Thank you so much. And these folks are up in a town in Oklahoma. So there are just hundreds of folks like that all around the country benefiting from what is going on uh, at this congregation. So God is using us. We're in 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're studying, continuing our study of the Davidic covenant. Now, Now, this is foundational. The covenants of the Old Testament define God's plan and purpose for not only what is happening in the Old Testament, But on into eternity, they are grounded in the Abrahamic covenant, and it is the Abrahamic covenant that is the foundation for what God is doing in history from that time, approximately 2,000, 2100 B.C., until the end of the millennial kingdom. Everything is laid out in those covenants. If we want to know why things are happening the way they are and what God is going to do and what the future entails, then we have to understand these particular covenants. Not only are they important for understanding the history of the Old Testament, if you want to read and understand what's going on in Chronicles, uh, Kings, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, then you have to understand these covenants. Because in many cases, for example, in, in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and Second Chronicles, uh, to a large degree in Isaiah... These are are written to talk about what is happening to the Davidic line and what God is doing in the history of Israel, always with a view to the future, always with a view to what God is doing, the failures that may come in the lives of Israel as a nation in the Old Testament, the judgments of god we 're not permanent we 're not final, but God ultimately will fulfill his promise and and one of the applications of that to us is that if God is going to be faithful to his promises to Israel, despite all of their failures and gross and perverse sins in the Old Testament, if he's going to be true to his word to deliver them and bring about the kingdom ruled by his Messiah, then that tells us that we have eternal security. That is a linchpin in understanding eternal security, this is why we, 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 when we talk about eternal security, I think one of the verses many of us go to to begin with is Romans eight thirty-eight and thirty-nine. For I am convinced in neither height nor depth, nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor any created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That comes at the end of Romans eight, and Paul hears, literally. Here's the Jewish audience saying, well, wait a minute. If nothing will separate us from the love of God, what about Israel? Haven't we been separated from the love of God? And he goes directly into Romans 9 where he begins with the reminder that God has uh, called Israel in the past. And then in about verse 4, he says to Israel still belong present tense, the covenants and the promises. They still belong to Israel. God has not departed from them and God will fulfill them that's the thrust of Romans 9 to 11 so Paul sets it all up with Romans eight thirty-eight and 39 and that reminder of our security that when the question comes well wait a minute God did God kicked us out not not it's not permanent it's ter- uh, permanent or terminal it is just temporary God is going to restore Israel and fulfill those fulfill those covenants So we've been looking at this in the context of 2 Samuel. Just a reminder, the three parts in 2 Samuel, that the first part chronicles God's blessing of David. The second part, in verses 11 to 20, God's judgment on David for his sins. And then at the end, there are these different events, six appendices that talk about the greatness of the Davidic covenant. So the the center... The theological center of 1st and 2nd Samuel is 2nd Samuel chapter 7. It's the Davidic covenant. This is the, this is the fulcrum on which all of 1st and 2nd Samuel turns is this and it becomes foundational, uh, for the future. And that's what we're seeing here in this breakdown of these first 10 chapters. The fourth division where we are now is, uh, 2nd Samuel uh, chapter Chapter 7. And so, as I pointed out in the last several lessons, it is not chronologi- uh, chronological that Second Samuel 6 and 7 are within a topical section, and they are topically covered, not chronologically covered, because as Second Samuel 7 points out, that at the time that God gave the covenant to, to David, he's given David rest from all his enemies, All around. Twice he says all. I don't know. Anybody read ahead into chapter 8? Anybody read ahead into chapter 8? Read ahead into chapter 8. It's one battle after another, one war against another enemy after another. So obviously, either you're going to get come away confused or you have to understand that the writers of Scripture write thematically, topically, not necessarily in a chronological fashion. For example, some of you I know over the last few years as you've been reading through the scriptures will come to me and say, I just don't ha- get have a handle on Isaiah. Well, welcome to the club, first of all. Isaiah's got 66 chapters, and it's not as easy to handle as like 1 John or Romans or some short book like that, but it's not chronological. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, you have the call and commissioning of Isaiah as a prophet. This happens 40 years before chapter 1. Chapter 1 and 2 happen 40 years after Isaiah chapter 6. So you you start reading this, and of course your head's already spinning because you think like a, a Westerner that everything has got to be in strict chronological order, and that's not what they're doing. It's It's like someone watching a TV show today and they, they come in a little bit late and they're watching, and they go, what in the world's going on? Because it starts with a, a an event that's happening right now and then it does a flashback and say, well, 14 hours earlier or 14 days earlier or something like that. And that's the idea. So we have to understand these the way things are organized and structured. So Last class we looked at what is a covenant. What are the types of the covenants? <clears throat> types of covenants. We looked at Gentile covenants. We looked at Jewish covenants. That's one way to break them down. There are other ways to break these down that we'll look at. Uh, we looked at last time and will today. But of the Jewish covenants, there's the uh, unconditional. And the conditional, there's only one conditional covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. The others are unconditional. They're grounded in the Abrahamic covenant. And then you have its expansion or development in three covenants. Because the Abrahamic covenant promises three things to the descendants of Abraham. God's going to give them a specific piece of real estate. That's going to be developed as a land covenant. There's going to be seed, and that word's tricky. We'll come back and look at it later. It's one of those words that can be used as a plural, meaning the descendants of Abraham, or it can be used as a singular, in which case it's talking ultimately about Jesus Christ, according to Paul in um, Galatians 3.16. So we have um, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and then third is blessing, which is developed in the new covenant. So we're looking at the Davidic covenant and tonight we're going to start. We're going to look at the context after we finish the review in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. We'll walk through it. That's what I call the basics. If you're a relatively new believer, it's been a while since you've gone through this. These are the basics of the Abrahamic covenant. And then we're going to connect it to the, back to the Abrahamic covenant and look at the similarities because these covenants interconnect and they're interdependent in their statements and their promises. So we're going to go back and look at how that develops and how it's connected to the Abrahamic covenant. And then we'll go forward and we'll look at how the prophets developed the Davidic covenant and how that is related there. And as we do that, we'll see how it's then fulfilled in the or, or it's referenced in the uh, in the New Testament. We'll see the promise of the seed, and that's when we're going to get into some really fun exegetical stuff in the Hebrew, looking at the meaning of the seed when most of the time it's used as a plural, the promise of descendants to Abraham. But Paul refers to it as a singular and says that when he said seed, singular, well, it's what's, what, 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 it's, it's a word that refers to a, a, a group or can refer to an individual. It's one of those funny words like the English word deer. I used to use the word shrimp, but we've gotten so screwbally in the way we handle English now that you can actually look up the plural a plural shrimps in the dictionary which was introduced by illiterate people into the English language. I've even noticed recently, I'm going to go on a rant here, I've even noticed recently that writers of scripts on television are using the first person I, which is nominal case, in the place of the accusative case. So that when you say that gift was given, I was always taught this, If if it's given to two people and you are one of them, then take the other person out of it, form the sentence, that gift was given to me. That is, that's what makes sense. And then you add the other people. That gift was given to you and me. That gift is never given to you and I. It is not about you and I. It is about me. We have to understand grammar. Now we have this illiteracy that is being promoted in the, among the perversion on television and so it's messing up everybody's use of the English language. And, and what happens is we all hear it. It's like the infectiousness of, of, you know. You know what I'm talking about. Every time you hear somebody say, you know, went to the store, you know. And pretty soon, you're saying, you know, you just pick up this, this nonsense and it gets infectious. So we hear people, I, I even said that wrongly one night. I just about went home and retired. It's terrible. It's just awful. So we have to be careful because uh, we have to preserve some measure of, of dignity and, and absolutes. So we have to understand grammar, and so we have to understand the promise of the seed. So we may not get into all of that tonight. We'll probably get into part of the third point. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about covenants, and we saw that a covenant is, this is important, a legally binding agreement or a promise between Two or more parties, especially four, always targeted towards the performance of some, of some action. God lowers himself to our level in order to enter into a legally binding agreement with us. That gives us confidence that if God is faithful to his covenant, then there is stability and there is certainty and we can count on things being, being what they are today in the future. That gives birth to science. You cannot have predictable science. You cannot know what is going to happen in the future if God is not reliable in the way he is maintaining order in the universe. This is why Islam never developed science, because uh, Allah is pure arbitrariness, and tomorrow may be different from today. Laws of gravity, laws of thermodynamics do not apply to Allah. Tomorrow, he can reverse everything. He can change it all up. We don't know because it is not based on a God who is a covenant God who makes promises and sticks with his promises. What we find when we come to our passage in 2 Samuel 7 is that the word covenant isn't used. So some people will come along and say, well, how can you say, I I just hate this with scholars. I've heard a definition of a scholar. A scholar is somebody who will believe things that are impossible just because it gives him what he thinks is academic respectability. That is not what scholarship is. There are times when a word like covenant is not used. For example, the term covenant is not used in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, and yet the stipulations That if you categorize the stipulations in Genesis 1 and 2 to unfallen Adam, and you look at the stipulations outlined in Genesis 3, uh, 12, and following, that they are categorically the same. You can line them up. We've done that before. The same thing can be done when you compare that to the first place that the word covenant is used, and that's in Genesis chapter 9 with the Noahic covenant. So if the Noahic, if that content in Genesis 9 is a covenant, then that which precedes it, utilizing the same terms and language, must also be a covenant. That takes care of Genesis 3 and then Genesis chapter 1. Just because the word covenant isn't used doesn't mean it's not a covenant. Uh, in De- The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is stated as a covenant. In 2 Samuel 23 verse 5, Isaiah, that should not be Isaiah, That should, there should be a P-S-A, not an I-S-A, that is Psalm eighty nine thirty five and psalm one thirty two twelve uh, these two psalms were written as meditations on the davidic promise so covenant 's a legally binding agreement, so God enters into this and binds himself to the terms on the on his side for The covenant. Uh, The term is applied theologically to the covenants in covenant theology, which are not biblical covenants, they're theologically developed um, uh, constructs. They'll talk about the covenant of grace before the fall the covenant, or excuse me, I got that backwards last time, the covenant of works before the fall. As long as they didn't eat, they'd be saved. So that's works. Then it's followed by a covenant of grace and then a covenant of redemption. Some covenant theologians leave out the covenant of redemption. But we're talking about biblical covenants, the conditional or unconditional covenants, the permanent covenants, which is everything other than the Mosaic covenant, And then uh, we also talk about them as Gentile or Jewish. And last time I talked about the suzerain vassal and royal grant. This chart shows the initial creation covenants, the Edenic covenant, Adamic covenant, Noahic covenant, which is still in effect, as indicated by a rainbow. Then God began to work through Abraham, one specific person, and those who were his descendants the Abrahamic covenant promised land, seed, and blessing, land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Most scholars who are too too good to be dispensationalists uh, don't think that the land covenant is a Deuteronomy 30. It is. Just don't be deceived by that if you hear somebody who tries to show how smart they are by denying that. And then we have the Mosaic covenant. These are all initially promises that are given in the Old Testament and they will all be fulfilled, but not until Jesus establishes his kingdom. So we have these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, broken into the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, and all are fulfilled and come into effect at the same time when Messiah assumes his reign as the Davidic king. What's that grounded on? The Davidic covenant that's why it's important it, it pulls all these different things together last time we went over this terminology that I'll be using I want to review it quickly so these are treaty forms that were common in the ancient world in this second to late third millennium and so those who wrote at that time wrote within these forms and it helps us to understand what's going on uh, in these contracts. So I did a contrast. The royal grant is grace. Anytime you hear the word grant or gift, always think grace. It was a gift to those who were already faithful and loyal. It rewarded the vassal for their loyalty. Abraham is given a grant covenant, a royal grant from God, because he had obeyed God's voice, Genesis 26, 4, and 5. But the Suzerain vassal treaty is an inducement to greater loyalty. It's not given as a reward. It's given to stipulate obligations of the vassal to the king, which is our second point, it defines what vassal loyalty will look like. That's the Mosaic covenant. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have the 613 commandments, which are the stipulations of how a vassal demonstrates obedience to the king. Um, The royal grant is given. It obligates the king to certain favors to the servant. So the obligation goes to God. He obligates himself to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And the the covenant partner is not uh, obligated in the covenant in order to maintain the covenant. This is indicated in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 when God has Abraham bring the sacrifices, they cut all the animals in half, lay them on each side of the main aisle, and then God puts Abraham to sleep, and God, symbolized by a torch, goes down the aisle between the sacrifices, showing that he binds himself alone to the obligations of the covenant. Abraham is simply the beneficiary of the covenant it's not up to him to maintain the covenant that's why it's called an unconditional covenant and it's an eternal covenant Um, in the royal grant the i mean in the suzerain vassal there are consequences of the vassal's failure if israel failed to obey god god said these are the five stages of divine discipline ending with the fact i'll kick you out of the land for a while If you can't obey me, then I'm not going to bless you. If you obey me, then I will bless you. But the royal grant provides a curse against those who would harm the servant. So God says, those who bless you, Abraham, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. It protects the rights of the king's servant, the rights of Israel, whereas the Suzerain Vassal Treaty protects the rights of the king. The royal grant lists all the many blessings and benefits the king will give the servant, the vassal, and the suzerain vassal lists the laws that the vassal must follow in order to serve the king. That helps us understand these covenants, that they're grace covenants. It's all about grace all through history. It's all about God freely giving and providing for his servant. And so the Davidic covenant is a grant Covenant. It develops a section of the Abrahamic covenant. As such, it must also be a royal grant. Now, this looks pretty clear. Can you read it in the back? It's funny because when I looked at the video today, this is really dark. Just thought I'd point that out in case anybody back there can do anything about that. I don't know why it gets really dark. You can hardly read the lettering. I tried to highlight the uh, letters with, with a white shadow to bring that out a little more. But, um, the Abrahamic covenant is, is summarized in Genesis 12, 1 to 13. It is actually cut in the ceremony in Genesis chapter 15, and it is developed in Genesis chapter 17. Those are your main chapters. The three parts are, as I mentioned already, is land, seed, or blessing. And then these are developed further in the Israel land covenant in Deuteronomy 29. The Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7 expands the seed promise, and the new covenant is expanded then in Jeremiah 31 as the blessing. Okay, that gets us all kind of back to where we were. The Davidic covenant, key passage, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, Psalm 89 and 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14, promises three things, an eternal house, or that means a dynasty. The word house is used throughout ancient Near Eastern covenant literature to describe a dynasty. Okay, that was the legal term that was used. It means he's promised an eternal dynasty, not like Saul, who was kicked out and his family lost blessing and privilege and died childless and there was no heritage. Then there's the promise of an eternal kingdom, and the promise of an eternal throne. To have an eternal kingdom, you have to have an eternal throne. The one who sits on the throne, uh, comes from the same lineage. So that's your eternal dynasty. So those all fit together. So that gives us a basic review of what we've covered so far on this. And then we can, uh, we can move forward. So we come to the Davidic covenant. Let's break it down, the basics. The key passage is, as I've said, Second Samuel chapter seven, and the covenant itself begins in verse twelve. I have eleven there. Some people will put it at ten. Some people put it at eleven, but it starts off in verse twelve. When your days are full, not fulfilled. King James version says fulfilled. When your days are full, when your days are complete, would be a better translation. Uh, when your life is over, as it were, and you rest with your fathers uh, and the, that that's that's an idiom rest with your fathers doesn 't mean you just died that 's not what that means it doesn 't refer to heaven. It was when you died, what would happen? They would take your body, put it in the tomb after the flesh had decayed, they'd take your bones and they would put them in an ossuary or some other receptacle, and put you in the grave. With the bones of your ancestors. So when you're resting with your fathers, that's what that's talking about. You are you have gone to the grave, and your bones are in the grave with your with your ancestors. So um, when your days are complete and you rest with your ancestors, I will set up your seed. After you there 's that word, and here it 's talking, going to be talking about his physical progeny, his physical descendant that comes forth from him, so uh, this in second Samuel emphasizes david 's immediate son that he produces Solomon with the son with Bathsheba. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 1710 to 14 will emphasize David's greater son, the Messiah. How do you know the difference? Because in 2 Samuel 7, it talks about when your son is disobedient, I will chastise him. That's Solomon. That's not mentioned in, in uh, Chronicles. Why? Because 1 Chronicles is written after the exile. First Chronicles is written to summarize what God has done in, in the past, before 586 B.C., in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and what he's going to do in the future. So there doesn't need to be a reference at that point to the part that referred to Solomon, because Solomon's history by that time. The persons, the parties of the covenant, are God, party of the first part, who enters into this Unconditional contract with David. And David is a representative of his descendants. It is a contract that is entered into with David and his lineage. This is going to come up. We've referred to it before in seconds, um, excuse me, in, um, Isaiah chapter seven. The passage it talks about, this will be the sign for you, Ahaz, a virgin will conceive and give birth. And you have to pay attention to the singular pronouns and the plural pronouns there because part of what God is saying is he's going to protect the Davidic dynasty of which Ahaz, a very, very evil king, is a part. And the other is a is a sign to Ahaz himself. And so you have to work your way through that particular incident because Ahaz is facing a an attack from a coalition, a military coalition made up of Syria and the northern kingdom because they want to remove Ahaz, the Davidic king. It, it ultimately, Satan's behind this in the angelic conflict. They want to remove the Davidic king from the kingship because that will destroy the Davidic covenant and then Satan can go nan 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 na to God and say I proved I can do it better than you can. And so uh God is telling Ahaz he's comforting this apostate king that that his dynasty will continue and there's going to be uh this sign in the future of the preservation of the Davidic line and that is that this virgin uh will will conceive. So it really does focus on the dynasty you can't truly understand these things that are going on in the prophets when they talk about the lines of the kings and why god traces the lineage of the kings down through through first Kings, second kings and in first chronicles and second chronicles and in various parts of isaiah and jeremiah it's all to show that god is faithful to his covenant with david So that's the initial part. And third, its importance of the Abrahamic covenant is it elaborates, it expands, it it fills out the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that God would, would provide a seed, singular, as Paul points out. This is fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, not fulfilled in Jesus. This is referencing Jesus. He is the seed that will come that will fulfill the Davidic covenant when he returns and sits on David's throne. So that's that's our basic framework, the covenant with David, one of four unconditional covenants God made with Israel in the Old Testament that provide the structure for understanding what God is doing with Israel in the ancient world and in, in history. The, we have to distinguish, one thing I point out at the bottom is that uh, the Davidic covenant distinguishes the messianic seed, which ends up in Jesus, from the national seed promises that God made to Abraham. That his seed would be innumerable. It would be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. That's using seed in its, in its plural sense. But in its singular sense, It refers, that's why we're going to come back and look at the exegesis of those passages when we get into the little more advanced stage. So first the basics, and then a little more advanced understanding of its significance. Um, In the Davidic covenant, there's the promise, first of all, that the Lord will build you an eternal house. And as I said a minute ago, that means dynasty. This is stated in verse 11, in 711, uh, Nathan says to David, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. The context as we saw is that David wanted to build a house for God, because God, up to that point, the the Ark of the Covenant had been dwelling in a temporary uh, t- in a tent earlier and then the temporary building at Shiloh, and then it 's been traveling around for a while and so after David built his palace, he decided that this isn 't a good thing for the ark of God to be in a mobile home, so he's going to build a permanent temple for God. God says, no, 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 you have to understand, I glorify myself. I didn't give you any instructions to build me a temple. I'm not going to let you do it, primarily because you're a man of war. Now, that's confused a lot of people, because they think that the military is a very honorable profession, and it is, and it is. Uh, presented that way in the Scripture. And we have the warriors of Israel that are praised and extolled. In fact, David himself is a warrior and praised by God, and God gives him the victory over his physical enemies. What we see here is that God is saying, you have a mission, and that mission was to destroy the enemies of Israel according to the Mosaic covenant. And because you have been a man of bloodshed, what would that do to David ritually? It would render him unclean ritually. Now, he could be cleansed and he could go in the temple. But because he is associated with death, which is associated with the punishment for sin, God wants the one who builds the temple to be one who is not associated with death not associated therefore with the penalty for sin and so he's going to raise up Solomon to be the one who will uh, who will build the house for God so there is this double entendre here where God is saying you're not going to build me a house but I'm going to build a house that is a dynasty for you that's mentioned in verse 11 it's mentioned again in verse 16 and it is mentioned, I have 1710 down there as well. Um, I think that's in First Chronicles. Second, the Lord promised a physical descendant, which is Solomon, who will succeed him as king. That's 712. He says, I will set up your seed, that is your descendant, singular, who will come forth from you. That is the a verb that indicates uh, a paternal generation. He is going to father this son. He will be from his uh, procreation with Bathsheba. The third stipulation of the Davidic covenant is God says, I will establish his kingdom. That is David, uh, Solomon's kingdom. He's talking about establishing uh, Solomon's kingdom, that the dynasty will continue through your physical son and this is stated in verse 12 and again in verse 16. In verse 12, he says, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Then in the fourth promise, is he promises David that Solomon will build the temple, not David. He will build a house for my name. This is the beginning of verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. And then the next promise is, the fifth, is that God says, I will establish his throne. God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's another term we're going to come back to because forever, sometimes the word alam, can simply mean a really, really long time. It doesn't always have to mean forever and ever without end, amen. How do we know that it is forever and ever? Because of things that are said about it in these other passages. We call it a covenant because Psalm 89 calls it a covenant. We have other places that confirm this, that that this is forever and ever without end. So uh, it is an eternal throne in 713b and 716. The sixth thing is that God promises that there will be an intimate relationship with him and uh, for this son, but... There's a warning that this son will be disobedient, but God will discipline him. Verse 14: I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Have we heard that anywhere else? We'll get there. It's in Hebrews, referencing Jesus. It's applied by the writer of Hebrews to Jesus. I will be his father, and you will be my son. He will, shall be my son. That's stated other places as well. And then he, God says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, see, that, that's not going to happen with Jesus, but that happens with Solomon. So that, that shows that this, this part of the covenant focuses on the immediate descendant of, of, of David and not the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 15 emphasizes God's continued grace. He says, my mercy, that is my faithful, loyal love, my chesed in the Hebrew, which always speaks of God's faithfulness to the covenant. He says, my mercy will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, just to make sure David and others get the point, that you don't forget that I took it away from Saul because of Saul's disobedience, even though god in his omniscience knew that solomon was going to marry uh, over 900 women and then he was going to let each one establish a chapel for their particular gods and so the hills around jerusalem were dotted with the chapels to all these different idols because of his wives solomon who was very loyal to god in the first part of his life becomes very idolatrous in the second part of his life uh, as bad as 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 Saul, but God says, "My mercy will not depart from him." So He's promising this unconditional covenant that will not be destroyed by the sin or sins of David's descendants. And then the seventh point is that in First Chronicles seventeen ten through fourteen, First Chronicles seventeen ten to fourteen. The emphasis is on the Messiah, his throne, his house, and kingdom will be established forever. So the Davidic covenant ultimately focuses on its fulfillment in the reign of Jesus Christ as the Messianic ruler on David's throne, which doesn't happen until Jesus returns to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom at the second coming. It is not fulfilled now. The reason I say that, and we'll get into some of these issues later on, but there are those who come along and see because we have a partial fulfillment, it's already partially fulfilled, therefore that establishes the basis to say these covenants are already but not yet, and that doesn't work. But that's how uh, the arguments are being presented in order to get us into some form of the kingdom today. But as I said, it, it, I've said many times, if we're living in any form of the kingdom today, then we're living in the in the ghetto, because none of what we experience even closely resembles what God has promised for the kingdom under the new covenant. So, what are the confirmations? The covenant isn't just something given in isolation between Nathan and David. They people could say, "Well, you just sort of." concocted this thing you guys had a little uh uh uh, conference yourselves and said let's uh let's really elevate david's kingship and we're going to tell everybody god made a covenant with him and so there are correlating confirmations in the scripture second samuel 23 will is a psalm that will confirm the reality of the davidic covenant psalm 89 is a meditation on the covenant. It's written much, much later. We don't know exactly when it was written. It's written at a time when the Davidic king has really failed. It's a failure of the, of the Davidic kingship due to sin, idolatry. It could be any number of points along the way. It could be at the time of Rehoboam. It could be at the time of Manasseh. We don't know when it was or when it was written, but it is a rehearsal and a reminder uh, of what God has done through the Davidic covenant, how he has remained faithful despite the unfaithfulness of Davidic descendants, and how God ultimately will bring about the promises of His of His covenant. So those confirm it along with much that is said in different places in other Psalms as well as as in the prophets. In Psalm eighty nine four, this is again um, a reiteration or statement of the eternality of the covenant. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So that, again, talks about its consistency and what God will do to provide for it. And then uh, the second thing that is confirmed is that the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled despite the conduct of David's descendants. In other words, God's promises to you and to me. Where he is faithful to us, even when we're rebellious, he's still going to fulfill his promises. He's still going to answer prayer. He's still going to stand by our side. He's still going to give us peace. He's still going to stabilize us. He's still going to be faithful, just as we see in the Old Testament. Remember what Paul says in 1st 1st Corinthians 10 is that these are written for our benefit. This is an example to us. All these events in the Old Testament to teach us about many, many things, but as far as this goes, the faithfulness of God uh, to his promises. And this is uh, stated clearly by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, 14 to 26. So these are the confirmations of the Davidic covenant. A couple of other points to bring out is that in terms of this being a royal grant, in terms of this being a a royal grant, uh, Abraham, it's like Abraham. Abraham excelled in loyalty to the Lord. Abraham was saved a long time before Genesis 12.1. We don't know when he was saved, but sometime in Ur of the Chaldees, he is saved, and he moves from away from the paganism of the culture to trusting in the Most High God. And God rewards that loyalty as we go through Genesis chapter twelve, we read about the fact that he he uh, proclaims the name of of Yahweh when he goes to Haran. He is evangelizing he 's witnessing and he is worshiping God and so that by the time he leaves he has uh, the text translates it acquired many souls, and that 's not that indi- sounds like like he bought a bunch of slaves. But what it means is that he has uh, brought to himself many people so that he now has a huge entourage of people that come from many different Middle Eastern backgrounds so that the Jewish people are not all... Linear descendants of just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because at the beginning you have these households uh these the uh, the clans, the servants, and others, and even when the israelites uh, four hundred and fifty years after Abraham come out of Egypt, who comes with them? A number of Egyptians and other slaves who who have joined themselves to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so all of that genetic material joins together with the lineage that comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's at the very, very foundation. And so David is given... Uh, this gracious gift of a dynasty, the progenitor ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Weinfeld puts it, David was given the grace of dynasty because he served God with truth, righteousness, and loyalty. Look at how this is brought out in 1 Kings 3.6. When Solomon is praying, he says to God, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart, which means that he is completely loyal to God. That's why God said, David is a man after my own heart. He's loyal to me. Did he sin? Did he sin egregiously? Did he fail? Yes, he did but he's loyal to me. David was dedicated to God even though he sinned. And so this this, it, this language, truth, righteousness, loyalty, language, Weinfeld points out, it's what you find throughout the ancient Near East in these other grant treaties from various uh, ancient Near Eastern literatures. He also states the grant par excellence is an act of royal benevolence, arising from the king's desire to reward his loyal servant. There's a huge implication of this to the rewards and the inheritance to the firstborn son, we studied that Sunday morning, that occurs at the judgment seat of Christ. All these things interconnect. All these different doctrines intersect. So we see that this gift that is given, it's... uh, you know, there are some Christians who still doubt. I still hear people say, well, I think that when we get to heaven, everybody's going to have the same privileges, the same abilities, etc. I call that theological Marxism or mythological Marxism. Mystos is the Greek word for rewards. Mystological Marxism. Every, no matter how you succeed or fail, no matter whether you persevere or not, when we all get to heaven, we're all going to get the same thing. And uh, that's not what the Scripture says. Some were rewarded with these royal grant treaties because of their loyalty, because of the will of God. There's a lot of different rewards. Are there going to be those of the judgment seat of Christ, according to First Corinthians chapter 3, that lose all reward, but they enter heaven, yet it's through fire but they will have no rewards. Others will have rewards, so there are clearly differences uh, in the text. And so, uh, Weinfeld says, It's no wonder then that the gift of the land to Abraham and the assurance of dynasty to David were formulated in the style of grants to outstanding servants. So part of the application for us is, do we want to be an outstanding servant for the Lord? Not for what we're going to get out of it, But because of the glory, it's going to bring God. And God will reward us for that. Now we're going to do a comparison here. For some reason, that didn't. um, Let me try to fix something there. Uh, Get it all on the screen. This should have been animated, but for some reason, it's not animating. Nevertheless, we'll put it back up here. Okay. First of all, God promised to make David's name great. Did you hear that phrase before? I will make your name great. Who did he say that to? He said that to Abraham. He said that to Abraham after the Tower of Babel incident when what were they doing? They were going to build a tower to heaven in order to make their name great. And God said real glory doesn't reside in your asserting your, yourself and your values. True glory a true fame resides in following me. God promised to make neighbor, uh, David's name great just as he had promised to make Abraham's name great in Genesis 12 too. Second, God promised security for the nation in their land. In the same way God promised a land for Abraham's descendants. So we have an embedded promise. It, that's not in the co- covenant section itself, but that's in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 10, as Nathan is setting things up and telling David what the Lord told him. He says, uh, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Has that happened yet? Not even close. That's not going to happen till the second coming, where they move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore. See, you got to read that next phrase. The sons of wickedness have been oppressing Israel all along, so there's no fulfillment at all of this. It doesn't come until you get to the millennial kingdom. So God is promising there's land issues involved in both the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Third, God promised David offspring just as he promised seed, plural, descendants to Abraham. He focuses on one seed for David. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 12, uh, so it is related to that seed promise in Genesis 12, too. Fourth, God promised David royal descendants. There's going to be a divinic dynasty, your throne. is going to continue forever and ever. God's a promise of royal descendants. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, in the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 17, 7 to 8, God told Abraham that from his loins would come kings. See the connection? You, the Davidic covenant enters, connects and intersects with the Abrahamic covenant. Fifth, God promised to bless David in Second Samuel seven twenty nine. This is what we get to when we get into David's thanksgiving response uh, to to God, he, he concludes in verse 29, Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Three times the word blessing is used in that last verse. God promised to bless David, and he also promised to bless Abraham. I will bless those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will bless and you shall be a blessing to all people. God uh, sixth God declared himself the God of Israel and he declared I've got that twice God declared himself to be the God of Israel and for Israel to be his people and that's stated in 2nd Samuel 7:24 and Genesis 17:7-8 says he would be their God and they would be his people. So that's repeated with David. So you see all of these comparisons, the Davidic covenant comes out of the Abrahamic covenant, expands on it and demonstrates the continued faithfulness of God despite the disobedience of the Jewish people. And seventh, God gave David and Abraham eternal covenants. They are forever and ever. That means that the Abrahamic covenant, now this is really, really important. The Abrahamic covenant is in effect today. It's in effect forever. The Abrahamic covenant was not set aside just because Israel is not the primary people of God in this dispensation. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. Now, the Mosaic Covenant came to an end with Christ, but the Abrahamic Covenant did not end with the cross. The Abrahamic Covenant is eternal. That means that God's promise to Israel that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you is still in effect. I've heard people, especially those who are influenced by libertarian philosophy, say, you know, there's nothing special about Israel today. So what that they have come back into the land? I've demonstrated time and again that that... It's incredible. Nothing like this has happened in Israel. Not that you didn't have this many people, this percentage of Jews living in the land, uh, even after the return in uh, 536. Even at the time of Jesus, you had still had probably 70% of Jews living outside of the land at the time of Jesus. We have almost 50% of Jews worldwide living in Israel. That's never happened before. This isn't just some quirk of history that was manipulated by people. I've heard that charge too. What you have is people who want to think that, well, because Israel is under divine discipline today, that the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant don't apply. And there are several words I could use for that that I won't use in the pulpit. That's just pure garbage. That's anti-Semitic garbage. Because even in the Old Testament, when Israel is out of the land and they are in Persia, and you have uh, Hamath coming along to with his scheme to uh, kill and all the Jews living in Persia, God protected the Jewish people. That's the story of the of the Book of Esther. God was blessing those who blessed Israel and cursing those who cursed Israel, even when Israel was disobedient and didn't care about God. God's name isn't mentioned once in Esther. But God is still faithfully protecting the Jewish people. That's the way it's been. Just because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah and just because God kicked them out of the land doesn't give any person the right to join God's discipline uh, consciously and, and beat up on the Jews because that's anti-Semitism and God will punish you. And we're in a world today when anti-Semitism is in a, an incredible increase around the world and especially in, uh, Europe and it's showing its ugly head in the United States Congress and these, uh, new Democrat, um, these new Democrat representatives who have been put into Congress, elected there. I I, I was sent an editorial yesterday by Carolyn Glick, and she makes a great statement. The the people who elected these anti-Semitic racists knew what they were doing. They're there not by accident. They're there because their constituency wanted anti-Semitic racists in Congress. And this is a serious problem that I don't think is going to go away. It's not going to change. Because the key problem in this country is is the fact that we've left the Bible. And if we don't get back to the Bible and the way we think and the choices that we make, including our love for Israel and our love for the Jewish people, then God is going to bring great discipline, and he's already bringing great discipline into this country. So God gave David and Abraham eternal covenants. So we'll stop here tonight. It's a good stopping place. Next time we're going to come back and we're going to st- start looking at we've looked at how it connected in the past to the Abrahamic covenant and now we're going to look at how it is used by the prophets as they foretell the future based on the Abrahamic covenant. So we'll look at passages in Isaiah. We'll look at passages in Jeremiah. We'll look at passages in Acts and in Hebrews and uh, Joel and other places showing the fulfillment that God is faithful to that promise and how it's going to be fulfilled and how it references Jesus and comes into focus there with Jesus and the Incarnation. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of your love, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, your generosity, that none of us, not one of us, not Abraham, not David, not one single human being deserves your goodness, your graciousness, your kindness, and yet you have been so kind and generous you've provided a a a messiah savior who paid for our sins who provides forgiveness and this is the message for all that no matter what your sins are no matter what your failures are no matter how horrible you've been no matter what crimes you've committed there is there's cleansing there's forgiveness at the cross and that god has already taken care of that and in terms of having an eternal relationship with you all that is needed is faith alone in christ alone trusting in him the perfect Savior, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pray that we'd be challenged by this, and it will expand our understanding of your plan and purpose and history and our role in it as church-age believers. We pray in Christ's name, amen.